July 30th, 2020. So for those who might be catching this podcast for the first time here at OT, we are trying to document important people, places, and events in St. Louis. We've had athletes like Jackie Smith, TV folks like Art Holiday, radio guys like Guy Phillips, etc., etc. So when I read there was another book coming out from the author who gave us Lost Restaurants in St. Louis, I went out and tried to find Ann Lemons Pollock. Ann's been in the St. Louis restaurant scene for a while, especially with her late great husband, Joe Pollock, from the Post-Dispatch. And man, is she a wealth of information. More on that in a bit. Last night, Blues and Cardinals both played. Fingers crossed. The Illinois High School Association has moved football, soccer, and volleyball to the spring season, which starts February 15th and runs through May 1st. Tentative first game for football, March 5th. Parkway is starting all five days online, but the good news is this is all hoax, right? No big deal. Wear your freaking masks. Seriously. Everybody, be good for like three months so we don't have to Zoom Thanksgiving and Christmas. Three things you should if you have not. 1982 Barry Levinson Gem Diner, the first of his three Baltimore films, set in 1959. You got a fiance that can't get married if she doesn't pass a Colts test. A great take on Can and May, you'll take to your grave. And Mickey Rourke before he went off the deep end. Also, Steve Gutenberg, Daniel Stern, Kevin Bacon, Michael Tucker. In their first credited roles, Tim Daly, Ellen Barkin, and Paul Reiser. Number two, 2014 movie Chef. We talked about this with front of the show Monsukso from Drunken Fish. John Favreau plays Exile Top Shelf, who returns to his passion and changes his life for the better when he creates his own food truck. You say, eh, sounds like an indie. I'll pass. How about John Leguizamo, Sofia Vergara, Bobby Cannavelli, Scarlett Johansson, Oliver Platt. When has he ever been in anything bad? Justin Hoffman, Amy Sedaris, and Robert Downey Jr. So if you like what you're hearing, helps me and the show if you subscribe. Wherever you are hearing this, just hit that little button. Don't worry, we'll never spam you. I'm just trying to get this podcast in front of more ears. Clickety click subscribe and thank you for that. You can also check out Ann St. Louis 7 episode on YouTube. Just search OT with Oliver. And finally, of course, Lost Restaurants in St. Louis. If you have not, you should. Perfect coffee table book. Look, I fully admit this hits me in my geek spot. But how could you not be interested in these stories? And the good news is, nobody tells these stories as well as Ann. Enough of me. Come on down, Ann Lemons Pollock. To go to overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. And welcome back to another edition of OT with Oliver. Going to have a blast today. Going to sit down and speak with Ann Lemons Pollock, author of most recently Lost Restaurants. Got another book coming out. When I woke up this morning, Ann, I knew I was going to have a good day for two reasons. One, you and I were going to talk iconic for, what did you say, long ago restaurants, which I, I love. It's just, I'm a geek. I like talking about it. And two, I'm going to the park more today and getting me some onion rings. Open last night. I'm excited. Oh, you are going to have a good day. You are going to have a good day. St. Louis does love to talk about restaurants, both past tense and present tense as well. Um, Lost Restaurants of St. Louis was a lot of fun to research and to write. We got to start back in the day you grew up in Deloge, Missouri, correct? 
yes, and you get a point for pronouncing it correctly. There are people who want to who want to uh, enunciate the S in there. And what did our folks do? I'm the only child of two teachers, a first grade teacher and a shop teacher. How did you get away from not being a teacher? Almost every teacher I know, their parents were teachers. Well, it's interesting because my late husband, Joe Pollock, was also the only child of two teachers. Um, Back in those days, and I don't make any secret of my age, I was class of 62, the options for women were much more limited. It was pretty much teacher, secretary, or nurse. And I really thought about teaching history or English, but decided that even without the long summer vacation, which in those days was a vacation, that nursing sounded more interesting. And frankly, it would cost less in terms of tuition. Having been raised by parents who lived through the depression, I was really conscious of that kind of cost. Where did you go to college? Um, In those days, there were barely any college programs for nursing. Uh, I started at, uh, I started nursing school at Barnes in their diploma program and left to get married because in those days, you couldn't be married and be a nursing student. And then after I had a couple of kids, I went back to Mineral Area College in Flat River, where my grandfather had taught and my mother attended when it was Flat River Junior College. And then I finished a baccalaureate while I was raising kids and working full time at St. Louis University. So that's how you got to St. Louis was going to college at St. Louis University? No, I was living here before then. I came to St. Louis um, the first time in the summer of um, 62 and then returned, lived here kind of off and on and then returned for good in the summer of 72. You mentioned Joe Pollock. Everybody probably recognizes the name as food critic for the St. Louis Post and Fat. You guys were married about 17 years? 18 years. 18 years. How'd you meet Joe? Well, it all started because of, I, I had met a guy who was a restaurant critic in New Orleans, and we'd gotten to be friends. It was not a romance or anything. And he had written and self-published uh, New Orleans 100 Best Restaurants, and he wanted to know if I could get him some, uh, some uh, subscriptions or sales in St. Louis if I could put it out to the media. And um, the first place you went in terms of of that sort of thing uh, was to Joe Pollock. And so I presented myself on North Tucker Boulevard and was sent to the fifth floor area outside the elevators and met the man himself. How long did you guys date? Well, Joe was a widower. I'd been divorced for many years. We knew each other for a long time, um, and our paths crossed increasingly as I began writing about food, because my friend in New Orleans is how I got into this. And so we'd known each other, um, we'd known each other for 13 or 14 years before we married. Did he propose in a restaurant? He never proposed. (laughs) So how'd that happen? Well, we sort of backed into it in terms of beginning to acknowledge that this appeared to be a really good thing. I had a good time being single. And um, 
Joe's explanation was, I think this would be the best thing for both of us. <laughs> Joe was very pragmatic, and so am I. So we pondered this and decided, and it was indeed a good thing for both of us. Good for you. It was, it was, it was a really good marriage. We had a great time. Tricky question. What makes a good restaurant? A good restaurant is one that gives you what you want. Um, that's an evasive answer. But, you know, what I think is a good restaurant may not be what a teenager thinks is a good restaurant. Zagat scores equally in terms of food, decor, and atmosphere, and atmosphere covers service as well. Joe and I always felt that food was the prime mover. Service is very important, certainly. And, you know, where do you draw the line in terms of decor? Does, does it count if the upholstery on the, the booths is starting to crack and break? Does it count if servers are hanging around uh, very casually entertaining their friends. I mean, I don't know. It, it's everybody has their own set of criteria. I know a lot of people won't put up with bad service, no matter how good the restaurant is. Getting ready to get into it. Before we get into my questions, what is your favorite restaurant that no longer exists? <sighs> Probably King Louis. Oh, okay. And what about it do you miss? Oh, my. I miss the way the bar looked in the late afternoon. I miss the hospitality. I miss the employees who were warm and personable. I miss the food. I miss the people watching. Anything else? <laughs> I think you covered your bases. And in covering my bases... I think when you talk about St. Louis food, the conversation starts with the 1904 World Fair. So when you go back to the World Fair and everything that was for the first time done and eaten and served, I know that you, you know a lot about that fair. So what do you think about when I mentioned the 1904 World Fair? Well, I would point out that even before the fair, St. Louisans were eating very well. Uh, in the book, uh, in, in Lost Restaurants of St. Louis, I talk about Tony Faust's, which is a legendary fine dining restaurant in St. Louis that was there for a long time, uh, opened around 1857. Um, there's a copy of the book behind me, but I'm not going to leave through to get the exact date. And it was a very high-end sort of place. By, by this time, by the time Faust was working, it was possible there were ice makers in existence so they could ice down barrels of oysters and bring them up river from New Orleans, for example. So, so you know, we, we certainly go back farther than that. And many of the myths about the World's Fair being first with this or first with that are really not quite accurate. But it was a fascinating place to eat. No question about it. What were the things we thought happened at 04 Fair that did not? Um, it was not the first place to do iced tea. It was not the first place to wrap a waffle around a piece of ice cream. 
And I'm trying to think of the third one that pops up immensely. But you you got to understand the World's Fair, you know, we, we've all heard, oh, it was a big deal. I don't think most people realize how big a deal it was just in terms of the numbers. The average daily attendance was about 87,000. There were, there was an amazing amount of foreign cuisine there. Uh, the number of large venues feeding people was huge. There were at least five restaurants that could seat 2,000 people at a time. And it ranged all the way. People could go there. There was food if you got there early. There was food that was offered that was free. Or you could spend the equivalent in today's, um, in today's money of um, $75 per head uh, easily. There were reports in newspapers of men clutching their chests when the checks arrived at <laughs> some of these places. Uh, Tony Faust, the famous restaurateur, whose um, daughter had married, had married a Bush, the, the son-in-law, got involved with Faust and with a famous New York restaurateur uh, named Lu Chow. Lu Chow's was a longtime rest German restaurant in New York City. And uh, they had an immense uh, alpine sort of a village on the north side of the fairgrounds. And um, they held the banquet when the president came, uh, President Roosevelt came, and the menu would look not so much with the nouveau cuisine type things, but the menu of luxurious foods and what they were, what happened to them would be impressive today in terms of that. The place had three wine cellars that were dug out of the ground. They had an automatic potato peeler in 1904 at this place. There is a schematic out there of the kitchen of this restaurant that I had a look at. And it's, it's fascinating. They had choirs, they had regular entertainment, they had a kind of a cable car ride to go up to the top of the Alps that they had made out of paper mache or something a little sturdier than that. Um, it, was a, um, it was an immersive experience, to use the, cur uh, the current phrase. So what actually did come out from the fair? What came out of the fair? Well, it's interesting. Um, we were the second place to have Dr. Pepper. We, uh, this was, uh, they were exhibiting things like uh, ginseng, including Missouri ginseng. Nobody realizes that, very, not very many people realize you can get it here, but it's now a protected crop by the Conservation Society. Um, I think, one of the things that happened was that increased the widespread use of nighttime electricity as, a, um, uh, as an element to add to fun. It increased the, um, the frequency of a new movement in food that was uh, involved in healthy, safe eating. And healthy then did not mean what it means now. Uh, it talked about uh, hygiene and things like that. Although there was one restaurant at the uh, fair 
that was very involved in gastric problems. The Victorians were worried a lot about their GI systems. And this woman um, uh, advertised that her menu changed every day. And among the things on the menu was that there were salads when vegetables were available. So I don't think of it as first, I think of it as, as more exposure and exposure of people to new ways of thinking. And if it was new ways of thinking about food or the first time they ever ate Japanese food or um, uh, something like that, I think that's fun. I think that's important. If you went out to a fine dining restaurant in the 20s, let's say, in the 30s, let's say, when I think of St. Louis, obviously, you think French. I mean, that's who kind of, you know, put their flag down first. Were the restaurants French or? No. Okay. No. What were they? Um, it's interesting. There was a little bit of Italian that was coming. Ruggeri's opened um, before the First World War. And um, there was a little bit of that, but it was primarily American and German because while the French started the city, it certainly came to be a very Germanic city. If you look at um, all the names, for example, in the tax registers and um, the, the, political, uh, the political leanings and so on and so forth, we didn't, we didn't get a whole lot of French food really uh, I don't know of any until after the Second World War. The, the First World War certainly gave us things like the song that said, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? But um, actually, there was a wonderful restaurant in Gaslight Square called The Three Fountains. And it was uh, run by a couple of brothers named Mutro, and that's a French name. And indeed, the Mutro family had spent time in France after the Second World War. And the Mutro brothers came back and created this elegant restaurant that did what we would now call recycling, using architectural elements from houses that had been torn down in the Mill Creek Valley, which is the area where Harris Stowe University is now and where Laclede Town of Blessed Memory used to be. But they put things, old pieces of fine woodwork and stained glass and so on and so forth in it. And the New York Times critic came to town, Craig Claiborne. And I think he only visited about four or five restaurants in town, and all of them were steak restaurants, basically, except for the Three Fountains. And he rather archly said, it is said that this is the only French restaurant in St. Louis. If that is so, it is unfortunate. <laughs> well, St. Louis has never cared a whole lot what, Saint, what New York thinks. And they went on. But, you know, there was, they really were very serious about French food. There were um, published recipes from the Three Fountains, from the Mutro brothers, including one for tripe, for example. Tripe in the style of, of Nice, tripes niçoise that encouraged putting um, uh, a calf's foot in with the simmering water to make the broth richer. 
I mean, they were very serious about it, but they also knew that they had to serve things that people would order. So, so it, it really didn't start coming in. And then there was the class of 72, which leaned even more French. The class of 72, what does that mean? Joe talked about the class of 72 changing St. Louis dining. And the class of 72, I always have to work to remember all five. Anthony's, Balaban's, Duff's, Richard Perry's, and Yen Ching. I got them all in one shot. Um, Anthony's, which was the younger sibling of Tony's, and which was run by Vince Bomarito's kid brother, Anthony, who is now the head of the retiring head of A. Bomarito Wines. Anthony's was very French. Um, it was very modern. And uh, they, were, they, were, they were very serious about French food. Balaban's also leaned that way, although it was a much more casual atmosphere but, um, for example, uh, nobody was worrying about serious mushrooms, really, until Herb Balaban put them on the menu. Uh, in this part of the United States, nobody got excited about Shad Row until Herb put them on the menu. There was a lot of that, there was a lot of French influence at the, at the original Balaban's. So you would see that. And then we began to get the French people in here that, you know, the real French chefs arrived. And by the end of the 70s, we had a plethora of them. Ballpark when the hill became a thing. You need to define what a thing is. When it became something that people who did not live on the hill started to go to the hill. I think that that was, that was happening probably a little bit before the Second World War. Ruggeri's was certainly drawing people from outside that neighborhood. Um, and after the war, it really began to pick up in terms of that sort of thing. You, uh, you were having, after the war, though, is when people, people who were working in the defense industry, for example, they couldn't get drafted, they were too old, they were too young, they were the wrong gender. People were making money and there wasn't much money, much to spend it on because tires were rationed and gasoline was rationed, so you couldn't travel. Um, there was a great deal of food rationing going on, so uh, restaurants were restricted in terms of what they could serve. And there were, by the way, arrests of restaurants who, for violating um, uh, the rationing uh, laws. But um, after World War II, eating out really began to pick up. And that was when you began to see some of these things coming in. And in the 60s, uh, there were more high-end places arriving. In the late 50s and the 60s, there were more high-end places on the hill. Eating out in general began to pick up after the Second War. When you look at a list of restaurants that are in your book and and just in general, so many more were on Clayton. Was Clayton like the farthest west street in the 50s that, that had all those restaurants? Or am I just noticing for the first time that there were a lot of restaurants on Clayton? Um, I think, uh, well, Bush's Grove was operating by then. And I guess that might have been sort of a mark to the west. Uh, Clayton, 
once you got to the county, Clayton was was certainly an artery. Clayton Avenue in the city of St. Louis, not so much. Uh, the Central West End was a, was was a focus of restaurants, certainly back then. Um, and when you think about the the places like Racino's and uh, like that, and the and the Gaslight Square restaurants, they were busy. But Clayton was an artery, and um, it also meant that you could you could get there easily. Uh, everybody knew where it was. It's always much harder to open an unknown place on a street that eighty percent of your potential guests never heard of. What made Al Baker's so important? Um, Al Baker was very demanding of of his staff. Not that he was a bad boss, but he had standards and he believed in it. He was concerned about the quality of his food. He had a really good location that caught um, the business card crowd, as the late Jake McCarthy at the Post-Dispatch called them. The affluent um, Clayton and Ledoux neighborhoods were to the east and the west, so they could come in. So... You know, he got he got he got it uh, just right in terms of location, and it, he was also another uh, person, one of several certainly. But the drama of food, the cart that goes to the uh, that goes to the table side called a gurdon, where you would finish a dish in a chafing dish, or you would flame the crepes Suzettes or something like that. So. So that was also a factor in it. He was an early adapter of how he understood that people were looking for lower calorie foods. So he became more of a, of a seafood guy, for example, and you could get uh, steamed or poached seafood. Of course, you always had the option of a really nice sauce, which involved um, perhaps more calories than you wanted to think about. I think of all the restaurants that I researched, the one that had the most influence outside of Missouri was Casa Gallardo. I don't know about influence, but it certainly went far. Um, I walked by the, the location for the original Casa in Westport Plaza yesterday and was thinking about that. Ray Gallardo um, really made Mexican food in an American interpretation kind of a, a date type destination. It was family friendly. It was consistent. People who were unfamiliar with Mexican food who might have been intimidated if they went into a hole in the wall where the, the language of the house uh, was not English, they were more comfortable in places like this. And um, uh, he was, you know, we were generally having an awakening of the American palate then, and and Ray did a fine job of that. He worked his wazoo off. Uh, we all learned uh, the language of frozen margaritas <laughs> and um, the uh, the varieties of enchiladas. Growing up in Baldwin, there's a complex. There are bars and stuff now, but there used to be a Sam's Meat Market, an Annie Santa Fe. I think Jack's or Better was also in that complex. 
can you talk about Jack Trebetter? Jack Trebetter to me was where I got to go on my birthday because my dad didn't like the food and that was the only time he'd let us go. I think that was very gracious of him. <laughs> um, I have to tell you, Jack Trebetter was around when I was not in St. Louis or was not going to restaurants like that. It's interesting that all three of those places you mentioned are chains and indeed in some ways franchises. Uh, the only thing I know about Jacks are better is the uh, peanuts on the floor. Wasn't it one of those? A hundred percent, which is why the eight-year-old in me loved it. Uh, I'm sure you go back to five guys very happily now. <laughs> uh, sticking with the Mexican, can you tell me anything about Noggles? Oh, my. <laughs> no, talk about of blessed memory. Um, goodness, Noggles was, uh, Noggles was sort of remarkable because somehow or the other, it just hit the sweet spot. Part of it was that it was open late. And part of it was, and it was, it, and Noggles is really the only chain that's in that book. They chose their locations really carefully. The one that is, um, that is on McCausland or was on McCausland was so close to the arena, for example, that they got after hockey game crowds. They got people on their way home from the ballpark. They got people who had left the movies or that kind of thing and so on and so forth. Now, eating a burrito as you're driving, especially as big as the Noggles burritos got, my much-loved daughter-in-law, who was raised on a farm, had a really graphic description of what would happen on the other end of a burrito if you weren't careful. <laughs> and I will forego that here. It just was the right place at the right time. And then when the flying saucer noggles on South Grand came in and there was a St. Louis U dormitory right across the street from it, uh, another example of the right place at the right time, plus there was still, there was beginning to be more activity in what is now called Grand Center, and they got that. So it worked really well. But the neighbors, of course, on, on the McCausland location were not happy. And Dan McGuire, who was the alderman at the time, got constant complaints about it, and at one point introduced a, um, introduced uh, a resolution that would limit uh, restaurant opening hours if you were within X feet of a school or something like that between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Because from restaurants like that, the restaurant said, the, uh, the neighbors said, there was trash, um, there was uh, loud music and uh, things like that. And apparently also guys who'd been at athletic events and so on and so forth hadn't had, had a lot of beer, didn't go inside when nature called. <laughs> so, you know, the, 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 uh, the measures never went through and um, eventually you know, things slow down. But there have been rumors of the Noggles resurgence going around that I know of for 10 years. And it's never happened. It's California thinks about it. We were among the last Noggles in the country 
to be changed into a Del Taco when Del Taco bought novels. But um, it's just, it, it, and when there was discussion of bringing it up again, there were two places that were apparent, three places that were apparently among the first they were going to look at to start it again. San Diego, Riverside County, California, which is an inland county in Southern California, and uh, St. Louis. All right, I'm going to hog the, the spotlight again. Something that I'm interested in, Noah's Ark. Oh, clam chowder. Noah's Ark um, was the brainchild of two brothers, one of whom worked for Lambert's Furniture and the other of whom was pilot for an airline. And they were originally going to have a steamboat out there and they were going to have live animals around it. The, um, the zoning laws did not allow for live animals. And then they thought about having like animal models. And then they thought what would happen if we put out fake horses and cows or donkeys or whatever. Sure enough, some prom night or earlier, they would probably disappear. <laughs> so then they thought about putting them on, up on the boat and then they realized they needed to change the steamboat to an ark. As they said in the Ten Commandments, so let it be written, so let it be done. Uh, and it was. You talk about a place that got business lunches, date nights, prom nights, and so on and so forth. But to me, they're the most important for bringing clam chowder into the St. Louis Main Street. Now, We'd had Howard Johnson's here a long time, and Johnson's being a New England-based chain had always had clam chowder on the menu, but it was just, it was not a thing, you know. And then Noah's Ark brought, brought clam chowder, and it was like the light shone upon us. They were putting out between four and 500 gallons a week at one point, and Clam chowder began to appear on St. Louis menus in many places, and we've never looked back. And I think that's a good thing. I think it is, too. My brother used to always like for his birthday to go to Big Boys down in Wentzville with the family chicken. You know, you could get all chicken or catfish. Apple butter was a big deal. We had never seen apple butter before. Can you tell me much about Big Boys? I can't tell you a great deal about it because it too is a chain, of course. And, um, but you were obviously city people if you didn't know about apple butter. <laughs> we were. Uh, Maybe uh, not city as much as uh, vanilla West County. That's the city. <laughs> when you come from where I do, that same, you know, it's not city versus county, it's city versus country. And, um, yeah, I grew up in a world with apple butter, and apple butter was not something you bought at the store. It was something my Aunt Edna made. Uh, and I, I, the lemons in my name came from someone who lived in rural Illinois, and the neighboring county had an apple butter festival every year, and I believe they still do. And in fact, when he died, he left the family apple butter kettle to my son. What do you think contributed to the decline of the cafeteria? That's a good question. I think fast food was probably the primary culprit. 
and to a lesser degree, fast casual. Um, we had we had two great cafeterias here in St. Louis. The Forum was not an original. Uh, Miss Hullings was. I have Miss Hullings in Lost Restaurants. Uh, I talk about the Forum in the new book that's coming out, Iconic Restaurants of St. Louis. Um, it certainly for a kid was a great place to learn uh, that your eyes are bigger than your stomach, if you recall that phrase. You look like you did, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, they, they were wonderful. Um, to me, the, the, the downtown forum was what I measured everything else against because we were a forum family. We were not a Hollywood family. Now, my Aunt Mary, who was an arbiter of all things that, that were just a little nicer, felt that Miss Hullings was just a little nicer. And I came to appreciate Hullings a great deal after I was an adult. But um, I, think, I think that we didn't want to sit down, take the time, go through all of this, and uh, then carry our own trays. And uh, it was much easier to go to uh, the drive-through at um, uh, drive-through at McDonald's or something like that, or go to Steak and Shake and have a car hop, or go in and sit down, um, or later on go to some place like the Red Company before they became Panera, and so on and so forth. And the other thing is, our tastes got more exotic. Cafeteria food was standard American cooking, and you either loved their fish creole and their meatloaf, or you didn't. Not knowing, I mean, you've forgotten more than I know. I just have stupid philosophical questions in my head. It's How okay. did the creation of malls and restaurants and malls change people's eating habits? Oh, I think that's probably true. One of the earliest food courts uh, was Seven Kitchens that was down in South County Mall. And they, the fact that they were all run by one company didn't dawn on most people. But I think that it made it easy for the kids to go get hamburgers and in the food courts the kids to go get hamburgers and mom and dad to maybe have Chinese or whatever and converge back on the table. And, and that, that saved a lot of arguments over going to Jack's or better, for example. Um, the other thing that malls did that has been um, more pernicious is the parking thing. One of the problems that independent restaurants have now and it's amazing to me that uh, the restaurants on the Hill have survived because of this. People, especially in St. Louis, people don't like to walk to restaurants. People are not accustomed to parking two blocks away and walking to a restaurant. And independent restaurants generally cannot afford the rent to either be in a mall with an outfacing door or on the periphery of the mall lots, like say Brio is at Frontenac. Those are expensive places. And one of the reasons that people like to go to them is that the parking is easy. And this is a shame. This is a shame. I'm a big believer in independent restaurants. 
and they are under siege in this period of American history in a way they've never been before. And um, the parking problem has just been a killer in many cases. What can you tell me about Mutual and Biggies? A lot. Give it to me, give it to me. Um, let's see, Joe Garagiola, when he married Audrey, had his wedding breakfast at Musial and Biggie's. How's that for an opener? It's a good start. Um, Stan, for all of his affability and approachability, and I bow to no one in my regard for the man, he was a lovely, humble person. Stan always said his favorite class in high school was accounting. <laughs> what does that tell you about his brain? <laughs> so when when most ball players didn't necessarily live in their towns year round, Stan decided to move here. And when um, Biggie and I can't probably pronounce his last name accurately, but I can spell it, offered him half interest in the steakhouse. Uh, he took it, and he took it very seriously. He was not somebody that would make an appearance once a week or whatever once things got done. He was very involved in the business, even you know from the start when it was down on Chippewa. Um, I found an ad from early, just after it became Stan Musial's and Biggie's, and they did uh, the ad did say that Stanley Cam would be on the organ. This was before he'd gotten shortened, or maybe nobody else was staying except Musial in that ad. Um, when they built the new place um, on Oakland Avenue, that was just a huge thing. There was, um, upstairs there were two rooms for private functions that seated, uh, one was 300 something and another was 200 something. Downstairs was a large dining room. And in the habit of steakhouses of the time, there were also Italian dishes on the menu. I was very amused to see that one of the appetizers for a long time was chopped liver. That's something you wouldn't see now. Well, you know, there are people who like liver a lot. I happen to be one of them. My grandma, my dad's mom, we mentioned Parkmore. We'd take her out like once a month, right, for lunch. And she loved the liver and onions at the Parkmore. Well, Joe adored liver and onions and could tell you the best places in St. Louis to go get it. The party the night we won the pennant in 64 was held, of course, at the restaurant. And the police came out to control the crowds, not of ball players, but of fans who wanted to watch the ball players go in and so on and so forth. The next year in the World Series, uh, the newspapers made note of the fact that the restaurant had installed eight televisions for people to watch. During one of the World Series, and I don't know if it was 65, I think it was a little later than that, Al Hurt was in town. And um, they had a, a regular guy at the piano who, to, to give dinner music there. And uh, Hurt came to dinner, and I don't know, where the horn came from, but at any rate, um, somehow or the other, he was persuaded to join, I think it was Dick Bolsano on the piano, and Stan, of course, had the harmonica ever at the ready. 
And so they did a couple of numbers, and that was fine, and everybody enjoyed it immensely. And as they were, as then they went on with their business, but as one uh, woman was leaving the restaurant a little while later after her party had finished eating, she said to the people at the door, that was a nice combo that you had. Do they play here all the time? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, the one at the airport was never as. But Stan was there often. He had an office. He really, you know, he was very serious about the business. Um, he understood it. He he was not a guy, God knows, Stan never charged for his autograph or anything like that. Um, I remember running into him in a doctor's waiting room and speaking up and saying, I believe you know my husband. And he, oh, how's Joe? But, but uh, reached in his pocket and pulled something out and wrote up on it and handed it to me. And he said, here, I bet you have a grandkid. <laughs> Bless his heart. You don't see many crepe recipes or restaurants around anymore, but my mom loved Magic Pan. Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. That's another chain, but uh, you're right. Uh, people were just absolutely nuts about it. And speaking, you asked, you know, we were talking about Balabans. Uh, the first night the Post-Dispatch reviewer went there, the main courses were two different kinds of crepes. Hmm. Yes. When did chicken wings hit St. Louis? To me, I the first place I came across chicken wings um, was at, um, oh goodness, this, I am short-circuiting today, bar at Euclid in Maryland that metastasized elsewhere. Her, um, not Herbie's, come on, help Peppers. me Culpeppers, at Culpeppers. And they were not identified as buffalo wings. We didn't know that for quite a while. And I'm thinking that would have been probably around 1980. Fairly soon thereafter, um, they they began to spread. But, uh, you know, the initial response is, oh, my God, they're so hot, they're so hot. But uh, I think everybody's heat tolerance has cranked up in the last 40 years. I don't think there's any question about that. I miss O.T. Hodges. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's a complicated story in terms of what happened and wh who went where and God knows who uh, originated the the slinger. But that's in the new book as well. Uh, I talk about that. And this is how stupid I am. Maybe three years ago, I realized that the O.T. Hodges chili is in Schnooks in the Edmonds package. Well, that's, I don't think that's a question of stupid. It was never marketed. How would you have known if somebody hadn't told you? It's not that it's been marketed that way. And, and I, I think that's perfectly, I think that's, uh, that's not dumb. You got a good Velvet Freeze story? <sighs> Velvet Freeze, my goodness. Um, I am so grateful that... Um, uh, serendipity has managed to reproduce the Gold Coast chocolate, which was my favorite. Uh, you know the the ice cream cone is still around. Huh. It's, it's at in the last one, the one from the uh, things was the place on Gravoy, uh, is at a uh, an elementary school in Afton, 
and there was a story about it in the Post-Dispatch last week. You can go and see it. It's outside. The Elva trees, ice cream turned out to be a kind of a treat that people, a splurge during the Depression. So people began to do that. Velvet trees got as far away as Kansas City, for example, and um, up into Iowa and a little in Illinois. There were more of those. But uh, then you get into the question about the Landshire sandwiches that were, before there were microwaves, there were little electric ovens that they would heat the Landshire sandwiches in. But, you know, you couldn't walk into those places without that overwhelming aroma of vanilla and sugar and so on and so forth. I remember taking my kids to Velvet Freeze in the middle of snowstorms. I remember the orange sherbet. Mm-hmm. Smell that when you come in. So we don't have many cafeterias anymore, and we don't have many places that serve cheap steak. But I did go to a flaming pit more than a couple times. Well, and I bet you got a toy out of the chest at the door, too. Absolutely. Sure. Well, the other side, you know, I mean, there's, you need to go to Best Steak on, uh, on Grand across from the, from the Fox. That's where you go for an inexpensive steak. And it's good? Um, it's an inexpensive steak. It comes out of a tradition. There was a, there was a price point for steak that was less than the Ponderosa type things, but these were kind of the origins of the Ponderosa flaming pit thing. There was an outfit in New York called Tad's Steaks, and they served steak, baked potato, and salad for some ungodly figure, and this would have been the early 60s. I mean, it may have been like a buck 79 or something. It was the first place I ever ate rare meat. <laughs> I, I was a very cowardly eater, but sometimes you're early on. I, I was shamed into it and discovered I loved it. Obviously, St. Louis is known for their thin cracker-like crust. Almost all the pizzerias seem to have made it. Luigi's didn't make it. Can you tell me much about Luigi's? Luigi's was one of the offshoots of many, and it's interesting. There's not good documentation on how that really thin crust evolved. Um, probably of more interest to me is the fact that back in the earlier days, and I'm talking the 60s, which meant you were a gleam in your father's eye, I'm sure, um, a lot of pizza places served their pizzas on in rectangular on old aluminum cafeteria trays. And I think those were military surplus that they used. And I also think that spreading the crust out thinly may have been um, uh, a matter of cost. It kept, the, it kept the cost down. Do you have a good Bush's Grove story? Well, of course, there's the classic story about uh, Harry Carey getting fired. And um, he was not expecting to get fired. And he held a news conference at Bush's Grove uh, that afternoon, and he sent a waiter across the street to the Ledoux Market. And the waiter was instructed to buy a six-pack of Schlitz. <laughs> and he was photographed with Schlitz in front of him when he met the press. Um, and then, of course, there's the great story. Um, 
Charles Lindbergh was dining there once. And of course, Lindbergh's ties to St. Louis are well documented. Um, Albert von Lambert, for whom Lambert Field is named, and whose money came out of Lambert Pharmaceuticals, i.e. Listerine, uh, they were backers of Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic. Uh, Charles Lindbergh was dining there and uh, got up and left the table and asked a server where the men's room was. And the story was that the server responded, if you can find your way to Paris, my guess is you can find the men's room. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So we got about another 10 minutes or so. Rapid questions because I'm a geek and I'm interested. One of the best German dining establishments I've been to was Bevo Mill. How would you compare Bevo Mill to other German restaurants in St. Louis? Well, I, it, you can't, they're all closed. Right. German food has just not done well in St. Louis for many years. And I, and I cannot compare it because there's just nothing to compare to. When did the breakfast buffet become a thing? I think when, well, if you're talking about hotel breakfast buffets, that's one thing. If you're talking about the brunch buffet, I think, yes, the, rise, I think the rise of the brunch buffet probably began in the 70s and um, became very popular in St. Louis because A, it was thrifty, and B, St. Louis is a very brunchy, it was at that time. It was, I think it was a fairly early adapter because St. Louis is churchy, or was then. And it was a nice thing to do after church. And you were already dressed up, and it kept mom from having to run home and get whatever was in the oven out, which is how it worked at my house, at least, because there were no buffets around. And eating out for Sunday dinner was difficult in St. Francis County back then. So on one hand, you've got the churchy brunch Sunday buffet, Sure. How did happy hour get created? That's an interesting question, and my guess is that drifted in from the East Coast. I, I The idea of a buffet at happy hour always sort of boggled my mind because people were hungry, they'd had lunch, they were done, they were drinking. That increases their appetites. If they eat, they think they can drink more. I, I just... Uh, it, and in many ways... This is a town that eats earlier. An eight o'clock dinner reservation is uncommon here. And um, seven o'clock in many households is considered late, a late dinner. Not just to eat out, but to have what I grew up calling supper at home. So it's interesting. Happy hours to me started earlier here than they did in bigger cities. You'd see it starting like at 4, 4.30 even. But it was to fill up a dead time in a restaurant. There's usually a pretty good profit margin on alcohol, even with specials. Uh, maybe you can do a little more activity. Maybe they'll stick around and have supper. Free plug for a restaurant here in West County off of 270 in Manchester. Have you been to Circa STL? I have not been there. I have to say that because I've been working on the new book, that I really pretty much stopped eating out altogether around the holidays and put my nose to the grindstone. And then, of course, I handed the manuscript for the new book in the day the restaurants all shut down. Gotcha. It's not so much that you're missing 
it has a St. Louis menu. So it's yeah. got everything like a prosperity sandwich. It's got your uh, steaks. Also your famous bar French onion soup. Well, that's, that's a fine thing. There was, there was also for a while a restaurant in downtown St. Louis in the St. Louis University Law Building that had kind of the same approach to things. And uh, it, it's interesting to have it all in one place. By the way, I have to tell you, I was at a butcher in London um, about four years ago and saw pork steaks. Were they any good? I did not eat, take one and barbecue it. It was a butcher. It was like two years ago they started to try to sell me on the center cut pork steak or some kind of like high end pork steak. They wanted, you know, three fifty a pound as opposed to the dollar eighty eight pound. Then they you know what and they were always in the discounted aisle. because nobody was was spending three times the amount for the other for the different cut of the of the steak. I think it's true and I think part of the charm of the pork steak is that it is relatively thin. Um, and, and the third thing is, this is a cut of meat that is meant to have a fair amount of what is politely referred to as marbling, but it's a high fat cut. And the center cut probably has more lean meat in it. Um, not that this is something that's going to dry out easily, but um, this is a good, you know, I mean, I'm sure they tried it, and it would be an easy thing to stop doing. You don't have to set up a manufacturing for this. But this is a good example of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Talk to me about the new book. Well, the new book, uh, I guess uh, Lost Restaurants of St. Louis sold well because the publisher came to me and said, uh, we want you to do iconic restaurants in St. Louis. And my immediate response was, I've already written about the iconic restaurants of St. Louis. They're in the old book. But it really wasn't quite true. When I'd done um, radio and all for the first book, people would say, do you have this in it? Do you have that in it? And I would joke and say that's going to be in volume two. But in many ways, this is because there are some restaurants that are in there that are no longer around. But this also gave me a chance to write about Tony's in the, in the time since Vince's death. Although I handed it in before the news of the move to Clayton broke. I've been able to, I, I talked about the Forum Cafeteria and um, I talk a little bit about Jack Salmon when I talk about Dohax in the first restaurant. But I talk more about Jack Salmon and chicken pot pie and things like that, iconic restaurants of St. Louis. So it's been a chance to go investigating more. I've got more recipes in the back because people seem to like the recipes. And um, it's one of the focuses I, I realized as I went through it is this is a lot of small family-owned restaurants. My Lee, for example, I've got a lot more ethnic ones in this because St. Louis came to that and is enjoying it immensely. But you think about places like My Lee and all of these families that have worked so hard to share their cuisine and their hospitality with people and so on and so forth. And I'm just really keeping my fingers crossed that these places are going to be able to make it through the hard times that are going on. Silly question. Is there a reason why we have such a large Bosnian 
culture? Um, I don't think that's a silly question. I think that's perfectly valid. Um, one of the reasons is that we have a particularly good institution called the International Institute here. And uh, they deal with helping resettle uh, emigres, not just refugees, but emigres. That's been their specialty since they came to be, and no, I don't know what year they started. So um, I think it began there, and it's not uncommon with immigrant populations that they get in and they get settled and uh, their cousin arrives. And they say, you know, they said to the cousin back in, you know, Zagreb or wherever, you know, it works here. There's a chance to get a job, to da 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 There's classes to learn English and so on and so forth. And so it's come to pass. And um, aside from the smoky restaurants and cafes, which were a problem, you know, kind of despite some of the laws, uh, the food is interesting. And as time passes, I think we'll be seeing more of that influence um, and more opportunities. You know, Anne, you've traveled extensively. I'm not asking you to compare St. Louis to Paris or St. Louis restaurants to New York, but all in all, St. Louis as a restaurant community, how would you how would you categorize it? We have we are very lucky. This is a good restaurant town. This is I mean, I understand what you're saying. We do not have the specific cuisine that say New Orleans has. So people have tended to think of us to come to us for, you know, these special items. But when you compare us to other cities of the same size, I think we do extremely well. We, the food is good. And as my, my New York relatives uh, on the Pollock side discovered when they would come here, our prices are very reasonable for the quality of the food we get. Um, we have, uh, on the whole, our servers tend to be warm and accommodating and are willing to say, I don't know, but I'll find out, which is very reassuring to me when people have questions rather than BSing it. So I think it's a, I think it's a really good restaurant town. And it was really nice to meet you. We're going to go head off and do a St. Louis 7, but great luck with the new book. I love the old book. I know it sounds, I'm not trying to brown nose you. I just really enjoyed the conversation. This kind of stuff, I, I here's a uh, bad analogy. I eat it up with a spoon. Oh, <laughs> thanks a lot. It's been fun. And there's another one for the books. First week, Monday and Thursday. Next week, we're going to do it again. Next episode's Monday. Following on Thursday, which episode will we pick for Monday? Let me see. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Yes, let's go with Crown Candy. Had a great talk with Andy. That'll be what debuts on Monday. Obviously, for everybody who's listening to this, if you can hit that little subscribe button, I would appreciate it. Want to thank and I really enjoyed it. As we do, thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.